0: something that I've alluded to but haven't expressed. These plagues come in series of three. The first comes with a command for Moses to go and confront Pharaoh in the morning with a warning, with a call to repentance. When he refuses, then the plague is sent. Then Moses is sent again with a warning. Again it is refused and the second plague is sent. And then... At Pharaoh's hardening of heart, the third plague, unwarned, is sent. That happens three times. This one is the third in the series of the third series. We read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, your little ones also may go with you, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved servants of Christ our King, darkness is a force to be reckoned with. We need to remember that. When our children are little, we tend to get annoyed with them when they wake up in the night and profess to be afraid of the darkness. We assure them that there's nothing to be afraid of, that the light will return, that they will be fine, that they just need to go back to sleep. But don't our own hearts... Skip a beat when in the midst of the storm the lights disappear? Don't our own hearts flutter a bit when we wake in the middle of the night and the night light out in the hall is gone? There's not even the glow of a lamp, but only the thick darkness. Darkness is something that inherently... Causes men to fear. And that's what we see in this ninth plague. In one way, it's the simplest plague of all. There's no transformation of substances. There's no mass loss of life or possessions. It's simple darkness descending upon the land. And yet, in a sense, this is the most terrifying plague of all because of what the darkness signifies, because of what the darkness drives home in the hearts of the enemies of God. And that's the theme we need to wrestle with here, that the Lord opens His enemies' eyes to the darkness of the coming judgment. Because you see, that is why the darkness terrifies people. Though they can't necessarily express it in words, though they might not fully, in the uppermost part of their mind, grasp it, that darkness terrifies them because it speaks to them, in a deep part of them, of the reality of the coming judgment which their sins deserve. And that's what God is showing Egypt. That's what God is showing us here. The Lord opens their eyes to the darkness of the coming judgment. And the first thing we see there is how he reveals the absolute darkness of his coming judgment. That's our first point we see in the first few verses. Moses is told, with no warning given, raise his hand against the sky and bring darkness upon the land. And so Moses obeys... And there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Now, we don't, we're not told by what means he does this. Might have been thick smoke or fog or clouds that blotted out the light of the sun. Might have been that God did as he would later do to the forces of Syria when they came, seeking to attack God's servant Elisha. Not blotting out the light from the world, but simply darkening their eyes so that they could not see. We're not told by what means the darkness settled upon them, but we're told that there was darkness, an absolute darkness. Evidently, they couldn't even obtained the light of lamps in their homes. Because we're told they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Egypt was paralyzed. They couldn't work. They couldn't visit. They couldn't gather food. Pharaoh's servants became utterly and completely helpless, struck blind by the hand of God. Now take careful note. How complete this was. Verse 22 says they were cast into pitch darkness. The Hebrew text there uses two synonymous words for darkness. Basically saying they were cast into the darkness of darkness. In other words, there was no hint of daybreak following the dark hours of night. There was no faint glow on the horizon. Like I said, evidently there there was no lamp light Casting away the darkness from their dwellings. Nothing but blackness, a dark so deep that verse 21 says you could feel it. Have you ever felt that kind of darkness? Experienced it? I did when I was serving the church in Minnesota. The pastor's study there is located in the basement with concrete block walls and no windows. The first time the electricity went out during a storm when I was working down there, it was black. You literally couldn't see your face or your hand in front of your face. There was no ambient light coming in because it was nowhere near the stairway out. It was just black. And what I realized at that point was how utterly and completely debilitating absolute darkness is. It's not just a matter of fearing that you might stub your toe or hit your shin on something. After a few minutes sitting in that darkness, because I wasn't sure where the chairs around the consistory table were, and I didn't want to trip. And I thought, surely the light will come back on in a few minutes. But after a few minutes of sitting in that darkness, you lose perspective. You start to get vertigo, not quite sure which way's up. When you do decide to stand and try to walk somewhere, you immediately bump into something that you didn't think was there and find out that your perspective was skewed, that your compass is off. And it's not long before you find yourself groping blindly for a wall, for a desk, for a something, for an anything. Now imagine three days of that. How utterly desperate a people would get. Egypt had to be terrified. Why why for so long did God keep them in the darkness my friends God wanted them to be clear This was no natural event this was no anomaly of the weather this was not some freak occurrence this was in fact a curse from the one true God Yahweh He wanted them to understand that he wanted them to get the message and what was the message it was a twofold message at least The first was uniquely for Egypt, being a direct attack on their most respected, allegedly most powerful god, Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra was the god they regarded as their creator. And he was personified by the sun. That's why Pharaoh went down to the Nile every morning at sunrise, Sunrise was their most sacred time of the day. It was the time when they believed Amun-Ra, the creator God, cast the rays of his goodness and blessing upon the land. The sunrise was seen as a time of life and resurrection, whereas the sunset was seen as a symbol of death and the underworld. So when the true God blotted out the light of the sun for three days, he was demonstrating to them their most powerful god was utterly and completely powerless against him. He was impotent. But he was also doing more than that. See, in Scripture, darkness has a very powerful symbolism. When the world was first created, the world was filled with chaos. It was without form, and darkness covered the face of the earth. The idea is that of a world untamed, a world filled with terrifying darkness and chaos. God reigned in that darkness and the way he did, the first step to that reigning in was by speaking and commanding that the light cast off the darkness. And so he set the darkness in its place and the light in its place. But sin caused the darkness again to break forth, not merely in the creation, but even in the hearts of man. And so scripture always connects darkness with sin and with evil. John 1 describes the world of fallen mankind as a world of darkness. While John 3 says people love the darkness because their deeds are evil. Job 10 and Psalm 88 connect darkness with death and with the place of death, while the prophets use darkness to describe the coming day of God's judgment. So in Amos 5 verse 20, we read that the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, is darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it. And Zephaniah 1 verse 15 says that is a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and darkness and gloom of clouds and thick darkness so darkness in scripture is never a good thing it's always a symbol of sin of judgment of punishment and death so god was using this darkness that cast off the false confidence of egypt's most powerful god to demonstrate that he was bringing judgment Upon them, judgment for their sin, judgment for their rebellion, judgment for their wickedness. He was giving them a taste of that which their rebellion had stored up for them. But notice, verse 23, But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. In Goshen there was sunlight, the sign of God's unquenchable love for His people. God was demonstrating to His enemies that not everyone would ultimately be plunged into the darkness of judgment. Those who trusted Him, the true God, those who served the living God, Yahweh, they would have eternal light. They would be rescued from the darkness. And it's in that that we find Christ in this passage. You want to find Christ in this passage? He's right there at the border of Goshen, holding back the darkness. Because darkness, judgment, all men in their sin deserve that. Israel, the descendants of Abraham, they they were sinners just as much as the descendants of Ham in Egypt. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore all deserve death and the darkness of God's judgment. It's what we deserve, just as much as Pharaoh and his servants. But God's people escape the darkness of God's judgment because of Christ. We escape because of the cross. We escape because as Jesus hung there on the cross for three hours, Matthew 27 tells us, there was darkness over all the land. That darkness was a demonstration of the judgment that Jesus was receiving for us. He endured not just darkness, but what the darkness signified, which was the withholding of God's love, of God's blessing, of God's goodness. And therefore, this passage for us is both a warning and a call to faith. It is a warning that for those who continue to trust in themselves or in any other false God, for those who continue to reject the living God, that's what awaits the darkness. But there is escape. There is a land of Goshen, there is a land of light, and that light is found by trusting in Christ. That light is found by rejecting our rebellion, rejecting our supposed self-sufficiency, and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you won't, well, Jesus said in Matthew 8 verse 12, That these will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But for those who turn to him, there is escape, there is light, there is life, there is reconciliation and peace with God. Well, after three days, Pharaoh at least starts to get it. He at least sees that he doesn't desire to remain under this inescapable darkness. Now, that's different, by the way, than true faith. Recognizing that we don't want judgment, that's different than faith. But it is a step in the right direction. And so he calls for Moses. And he offers to concede a bit. Verse 24. Go, serve the Lord, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. You see what he's doing there? Pharaoh will allow all of the people. Before, he only wanted the men to go. Now he says, you know what? Men and women, young and old, you can go. But what he won't do is cede absolute authority to God. He won't acknowledge that God is the one calling the shots. He won't step off his throne. And so Moses doesn't waste a whole lot of gentleness on him. Moses understands what he's doing. He's trying to get the curse to go away without actually serving the Lord. He's trying to get the suffering to end without actually acknowledging that Yahweh is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Folks, this is an image of ...of the unbeliever who gets a glimpse of the darkness of God's coming judgment. Seeing even a brief symbol of God's judgment convinces them they don't want it. But absent the powerful working of God's Holy Spirit... ...they're also not willing to concede full submission to God. They want to escape the judgment of the true king without abandoning their throne... They want to maintain their pride, their power, their possessions while also escaping the price. But Moses makes it very plain to Pharaoh that that is not acceptable. Yes, he tells Pharaoh, we will go and worship the Lord with our little ones in tow, but we will not Leave even one hoof behind of our livestock. In part, because we're called to worship God and we don't know what sacrifices we need to use to do so. But also, in greater part, because those animals don't belong to you, Pharaoh. Those animals belong to God. Those animals aren't for your profit or for your blessing. Those animals are meant to glorify God. They are His and they will go at His command. And that shows us the lesson of this second part, that God requires absolute submission. Absolute submission to His will. He will not accept half-hearted submission such as Pharaoh is offering. God is not pleased with a submission that drags its feet. He's not okay with attempts to get by with good enough. Kids, you know what He's talking about here, right? You ever get that chore and you don't want to do that chore because you think you've done enough chores today? And so you sigh and you make it clear you really don't want to do it. But you don't don't really want to get dad's wrath by just refusing, right? So you go and you do it, but you do the bare minimum. You run the vacuum, but that's good enough. You fold the clothes, but they don't look very folded. You wash the dishes, but you get water everywhere, and they're not exactly the cleanest. That's what Pharaoh's doing here. That's what unbelievers often do. They go to church on Christmas and Easter. That's good enough, right? They pray when they're in trouble. That should be okay, but God is not okay with that half-hearted, lukewarm submission. He requires absolute submission to his will. And that's a lesson for us, brothers and sisters, because we too have a little bit of Pharaoh in our hearts. We too are tempted to that almost submission. We're tempted on the Lord's Day, aren't we? We know we need to go to church. We need to worship God. We need to hear His Word. But, you know, then once we've done that, well, then it's me time. Or then it's family time. That sounds better. Right? And so we can justify not worshiping God in the evening or we can justify uh, doing whatever's on our hearts because, you know, we did our part for God. Or we know that God condemns bearing false witness, but then, but then that neighbor sends that juicy little tidbit, and, and we just feel compelled to, to share it as a prayer concern. Or we know that God says, don't steal, but, but surely it's not wrong to hide that cash payment from the IRS. They don't need to know about that. And I mean, the government itself urges us to steal through socialist programs that take from our neighbor to give to us. And that's not bad, right? Everybody else is doing it. Or God calls us to submit to our parents, but then our friends say, you know what, they don't know won't hurt you. What's the harm in in telling your parents this little, it's not going to hurt anybody to tell them this little white lie and go do what you want. It's all compromise. It's all serving the Lord just a bit, but not the whole way. And folks, we are called to reject it utterly. Those who would compromise on God's demands, this, this plague shows us, deserve the unutterable darkness of His judgment. And of course, we all would compromise. We all would be in the dark, left to our own devices. So God calls us with this passage to ask for his help, to pray for his conviction, to to plead for his strength to serve him without reserve, to serve him wholeheartedly. And you know what? If we ask, he'll give it. He'll empower us. He will enable us to serve him the way we ought. Not all at once. Once. But bit by bit, we'll find ourselves serving Him more and more wholeheartedly and completely. Pharaoh wants none of that. His heart is truly hard. But, but what does verse 27 mean when it says, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? Does that mean that Pharaoh would have obeyed if only God had allowed him? No. What this means is that God abandoned Pharaoh to the sin of the rebellion that he had chosen. We don't know exactly what that looked like. Calvin thinks perhaps perhaps God allowed Pharaoh to see just a, a lightning of the sky when Moses came to visit him. Others think, well, maybe he remembered he would have to answer to his advisors and it, it caused his pride to rise up. doesn't matter. What it comes down to is that at that crucial moment when Pharaoh could have submitted wholeheartedly to the Lord and and been rescued from the darkness, God allowed him to cling to his own sovereignty, to cling to his sin. Romans 1 tells us that's what happens to the unbeliever. They see the evidence of God surrounding them In the rain that waters the land so that we can have crops. In the sun that brings those crops springing forth. In the beauty of the grass, each blade having been perfectly designed by God to fulfill its role. God surrounds us with evidence of Him. And the unbeliever denies it, rejects it, insists that it it doesn't show anything of God. It's all random. It's all the product of eons of evolution. And so God gives them over to the darkness of their rebellion. And when they plunge themselves into that rebellion, God resolves absolutely to depart from them. It's the last thing we see here. Pharaoh says to Moses, Get away. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day that you see it, you will surely die. File that under things you shouldn't wish for. Because Moses assures him that he will obey. Unbelievers do this all the time. It's why they refuse to darken the doors of a church. It's why they refuse to accept a Bible from the Gideons. It's why they embrace absolutely silly ideas like evolution. It's because they don't want to acknowledge that God exists. Because if they acknowledge that God exists, if they open themselves just a little bit, they'll have to acknowledge what a web of lies they built their lives on. They'll have to recognize that they cannot stand. They lack the strength and the wisdom to stand on their own two feet. They'll have to acknowledge that they've built their lives on a web of lies. And that they need to turn away from all of it and serve Him wholeheartedly. And that they do not, will not be willing to do. So they cast God off. They command Him to depart. And God says, okay. He heeds the unrighteous request of the unbeliever and plunges him down a course that leads to darkness. Because you see, true darkness is really just the absence of the blessing and the favor of God. That's why darkness inherently causes us to fear The darkness of night reminds us of the darkness of God's judgment. The darkness of the night speaks to us of the darkness of hell when God withdraws from his enemies all of the light of his favor and love. Hear this well. The essence of hell is the darkness of existing apart from the blessing and favor of God. And beloved, it is that which Jesus endured for his people. That darkness is what made the cross so unbearable. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the jeering of the crowd. It wasn't the torn flesh and the bleeding and the the pain and difficulty of breathing. All of that was horrific. It was absolutely unbearable, but it was as nothing in comparison with the darkness. It was that which after three hours caused Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in the darkness of God's departure, which his enemies demand, of which hell consists. Jesus took that for us, enduring the darkness that would have left us utterly and eternally undone, so that we can look forward to the light of God's presence, God's favor, God's unquenchable love. So let us not look at this passage and remain unmoved. But instead, brothers and sisters, let us recognize the ugliness and the terror of that darkness and let us flee. Not as Pharaoh did, seeking to compromise, seeking to drive a bargain with God, saying, I'll do this but no more but rather pleading with God for the strength to be wholeheartedly and completely committed to Him. Let us trust in God without reserve. Let us put our hope entirely and only in Christ. And then let us turn over our lives, the fullness of who we are unto Him, demonstrating our faith, as did, as did those faith-filled friends with the paralytic demonstrating our faith with a bold, open, public display of submission and love for the Lord. And we will escape the darkness. We will already have escaped the darkness and we will live night or day, no matter what we're facing, in the light of God's presence, God's favor, God's love. Amen. Let's pray.